Have you ever questioned a decision your parents made? Mom, Dad, that wasn't the right call. Come on. Or maybe, uh, have you ever had trouble understanding or believing or following a part of Scripture? And if that doesn't get you, have you ever doubted God? If any of these apply to you, this sermon is for you. If, if none of them do, well, I'm sure there's a friend of yours that could really hear this stuff and, and needs to hear it from you, maybe. This morning, we are going to be in Genesis chapter 32. Uh, if you'd open your Bibles there, we're going to take a look at our passage and dive on in. If you don't have a Bible or if you didn't bring one with you, there's one in the seat in front of you. It looks just like this. And if you're in that Bible, we're on page 24. So flip on over there. If you don't own a Bible at all, please take this one home. This is yours now so that you would have a Bible. This morning, we are looking at Jacob. Genesis chapter 32, and we're starting in verse 24. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob... He touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for these words, um, and thank you for this morning, an opportunity to take the garbage, take the good, take the bad, take everything that's happened this last week, and just come and bring it to you with open hands and say, here, God, this is yours, an opportunity for us to spend some focused time diving into your word. But more importantly than that, God, spending some focused time seeing how we can grow, how we can learn, how we can draw closer to you because of it. God, please let that be what people walk out with today. God, as we dive into your word, let it change our lives. Let it not just be knowledge or in one ear and out the other, but God, let it affect our hearts and draw us closer to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me give you a quick recap of where we've been in our series. We've been going through this series called The Step of Yes, and we've been taking an opportunity, going back and looking at different characters in the Old Testament, and God calling them and saying, hey, I, I have something I want you to do. And then their response, their response to God's call. God initiates and we respond. And that's kind of where we've been. And for a lot of them that we've looked at, they were given a very clear choice. Enoch, 
was given a choice, and he chose to walk with God. Solomon was given a choice of what to ask for, and he asked for wisdom. Esther was given a choice, and she chose to stand up and be brave for her people. Noah was given a choice, and he chose, however crazy and bonkers it sounded, he chose to build an ark totally far away from land, or from water. It was on land. Yeah, I'm paying attention. Gideon was given a choice, and he chose to go and to lead. But others that we've looked at had their choice kind of thrust upon them. When God asked them to do something, it was kind of like, I'm asking you and you're going to do it, whether you like it or not. Like Job. Job was asked to suffer, and the suffering was kind of thrust upon him. Abraham. Abraham was asked to be blessed, and he was blessed. And Joshua. Joshua was asked to lead, and he was told, you are going to lead. As we see in this passage here, Jacob is right in that same second camp, with his choice being clearly thrust upon him. Jacob, you don't get an opportunity. I'm going to ask you to wrestle, and let's go right now, uh, whether you like it or not. Now, let me tell you kind of my history with this story of Jacob wrestling with this angel, or as I see it as we look at the scripture, wrestling with God. In second grade, I'm guesstimating here, I probably heard this story for the first time and was like, cool, Jacob wrestles with an angel and wins. That's weird. Okay, let's move on. And and it was just kind of like, okay, that was nice and let's kind of get on to something else. In sixth grade, I was in a Sunday school class where, where we were like, the elite, you know, we used commentaries and Bible dictionaries and stuff like that in our Sunday school class. And, you know, we just knew everything there was to know about the Bible. So we got into this and talked about who exactly the angel was. And, you know, did you catch the fact that Jacob was blessed at the end? But still, that's weird. Wrestling with God? Let's move on. And then I became a pastor and, and started going to seminary. And we got into this even more and, and started asking the question, why is God losing to Jacob? This is weird. Let's move on. You know, just like, this, this is just a bonkers story. And in fact, if you get into this and kind of take a look at it, this story says some very interesting things regarding God if we look at this story in isolation. Okay, so let's go back to our passage and, and kind of see what we learn here, looking at this story in isolation. Verse 24 of chapter 32. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Now, we know this is an angel or God. I'm just going to refer to him as God throughout this passage. So, first thing we learn is that God wrestles with us. Okay? When the man saw he did not prevail against Jacob... So we learn there that God can lose in a wrestling match. Interesting. So when he saw he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Next thing we learn, God cheats. That's not cool. (laughs) I'm just going to put your hip out of socket. And then we go on, let me go for the day is broken. Jacob said, I will not go unless you bless me. And then later we see that God does bless him, so we learn that God caves to our demands. And then we keep on going. In verse 31, it says, The sun rose upon him 
as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. So finally we learned that God gets us in the end. Just some great messages drawn out of Scripture here. No, absolutely not. See, what's important is when we look at Scripture to always look at the context, to always look at what's going on. And so we're going to take some time and take a look at the context and just kind of what's going on in this passage, where this is all coming from, maybe draw a little bit more truth out of this passage than just kind of looking at it at face value. Because when you do look at it at face value, it sounds kind of bonkers. Let's take a look at Jacob's story. Okay, all the way back to birth. Rebecca is told she's got two babies in her womb. She's got twins. And she's told that the older will serve the younger, which is a very weird prophecy in that time. You know, the oldest son got all the privileges, all the birthrights. So she's told that the older will serve the younger. And we see throughout Jacob's story in Genesis, starting in Genesis 25, that God's hand is on him. But throughout the whole story, he's selfish and self-righteous. So like I said, it begins with this prophecy about him that his brother would serve him. I don't know. We don't really know how Jacob was brought up, whether that was common knowledge that he was supposed to be leading his brother Esau, anything like that. But given the nature of Rebecca and kind of what we learn about her, I imagine there were some words that were said to Jacob as he was growing up. And then the, the famous story of Jacob and Esau, when Jacob deceives his brother, tricks him into giving him his birthright, goes and gets the blessing, all that kind of stuff. Very selfish. Very selfish out of Jacob. And then he takes off. Rebecca says, hey, you got to get out of here. You know, Esau's going to kill you. Leave. So he, he takes off. Again, a selfish move. On his way out, he has this prophetic dream where there's all these angels going up and down this ladder to heaven, where God promises to make him a great nation, which is the hand of God just, just showing up and saying, look, I'm here and I'm going to take care of you and I am going to bless you. So then after that, he heads over to his uncle Laban and falls for this girl Rachel and says, hey, let me work for you for seven years. And so he does and he winds up marrying Leah instead of Rachel due to Laban's trickery. And then after seven more years of work, he marries Rachel. I'm speculating here, but I imagine that Jacob's feeling pretty confident of himself, you know, a little frustrated at Laban, but at the same time, hey, I just worked 14 years, got myself two wives, I'm doing pretty good. And then he does really well at Laban's home. Now, we see that it's God blessing him throughout this whole time, but I don't know exactly what was going through Jacob's head. Maybe he was patting himself on the back. He, at this point, had 12 kids, 11 sons and a daughter, loads of livestock. And then he gets in this big quarrel with Laban over whose livestock is whose, and Laban's trying to trick him, and he's trying to trick Laban. And he gets a word from the Lord, and God says, you need to go back home. And so Jacob picks up and takes off. Has this big fight with Laban, has this big argument. They finally come to terms and say, look, right here, I'm not going to cross over this way. You don't cross over that way. So here's where we're at. He's running from Laban. He's getting away. And he knows as he's headed back home that Esau's around there somewhere. So he sends some servants ahead to kind of track them down. In fact, let's take a look at the beginning of Genesis 32. 
So flip back to the beginning of Genesis 32. We're going to start in verse 1. So this is him departing from Laban. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of the place Mahanam. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. Not the message you want to hear. This is your older brother who you stole his birthright, you stole his blessing, and then you took off and you haven't seen him in at least 14 years, probably a lot more by the time that his wives had 11 kids. So it's been a while, and I'm sure Esau's built up some anger. If I'm Jacob, I'm thinking that. Verse 7, then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Rightly so. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all these deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. For I fear him that he may come attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude." So Jacob's got this internal struggle going on in his mind right now. He knows that God has promised him to take care of him, to make him a great nation, to bring him back to the land, to make the land his, all this kind of stuff. But yet, he's got Esau coming towards him. And so what he does is he, is he takes all of his livestock and family and servants and all this kind of stuff and divides them up into groups. And he says, okay, here's the plan. What we're going to do is we're going to send, send out group after group. So group number one will hit Esau. And everything that's in group number one, we're going to offer to Esau. And say, here, this is a gift from Jacob. And then group number two is going to come. And they're going to say, here, here's another gift from Jacob. And then group number three is going to come. And then group number four, and so on and so forth. And Jacob puts himself at the very end of this whole parade of gifts, hoping that by the time everything has come to Esau, he'll be like, all right, Jacob's given me lots of gifts. I feel like we're cool. Maybe Esau won't kill me now. And this is kind of what Jacob is kind of like rolling through his head, like, man, if I just do this, then, you know, maybe everything will be okay with Esau. And so this is kind of how he's approaching this. He's in this tough spot. With Laban, he can't go back. He has nowhere to return. But yet at the same time, he's fearing Esau and feels like he has nowhere to go. So that's our context. And then we get into our wrestling story. So let's take a look at what the story says in context. 
in contrast to what the story said in isolation. That same night, Jacob arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 children, and crossed the fort of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. He's by himself. He's there wrestling with all this stuff. And a physical manifestation of what's going on in his head takes place. And the man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. See, the first thing I think that we can draw out of this is that God allows and, in fact, invites us to wrestle. First, it says, a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. I went and looked it up. It was very interesting. Martin Klein of Russia wrestled Alfred Asakainen of Finland in the semifinals of the 1912 Summer Olympics. The winner would wrestle for the gold medal. Well, the match went on for 11 hours and 40 minutes. And the winner, Martin Klein, was so exhausted after his match, he could not go on to wrestle in the finals and conceded the gold medal, taking the silver home instead. That was what I got when I searched for longest wrestling match. So is it possible for Jacob to wrestle all the way until the break of dawn? You betcha, but he's probably not up for much afterwards. (laughs) Back to what's going on here, what the story says in context. First of all, that God allows and invites us to wrestle. See, this story here, this is for Jacob. We see that God shows his power with a simple touch. See, it's not that God's losing. It's just that he's withholding his power, just holding it back. And later we see in verse 26 where it says, let me go for the day is broken. God doesn't need to ask Jacob to let him go. He could get out himself, of course. But this whole thing is for Jacob. Similar to Abraham and Isaac's story. When Abraham is told, hey, I want you to go sacrifice your son Isaac. It's a story for Abraham. We'll come back to that in a minute. But I think this idea of God allowing and inviting us to wrestle, we can see throughout Scripture. Others are allowed to wrestle. Abraham is allowed to wrestle through the whole Isaac sacrifice experience. Job, throughout the whole book, he's wrestling. Wrestling with his own self-righteousness versus God's holiness. No, no, stop telling me I need to confess my sins. I'm righteous, I'm righteous. God steps in and says, how dare you? Who are you to talk to me that way? Peter is allowed to wrestle with what he believes. And he goes back and forth so many times. In fact, getting to the point of denying Christ and then being reconciled to him. And even David is allowed to wrestle. In fact, we see that over and over and over in the book of Psalms. In fact, one of my favorites is is Psalm 13. It starts out by saying, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? David is allowed to wrestle, and and he wrestles with who God is. 
God is not afraid of our questions. In fact, we need to ask and answer our questions. Just a couple weeks ago, many of you were here last week when you saw two of our high schoolers get baptized. See, these, both of these boys uh, grew up in the church, grew up going to church, grew up knowing about God, went to youth group, were there every week, but hadn't really landed on the fact that this was their faith, that they owned it, that they had their questions answered and were, and were solid in who God was. But see, up at Hume Lake, they discovered God for themselves. And they now believe with a confidence they didn't have before. Because they landed at something and said, yeah, this is mine. I'm sure of it. When I I taught a Bible class a few years ago, and one thing I stood up and told my class at the very beginning of the semester, I said, it's more important for you to know why you believe than to believe the same thing that I do. I said, it's more important for you to know why, so that it's yours, so that you own it, so that you aren't rolling around wondering if you're right, but have confidence in it. God's not afraid of our questions, so ask those questions. But at the same time, God does tell us to trust him. See, in Psalm 13, David is saying that he's wrestling with his thoughts. He feels like his enemy over his has overtaken him and his foes will rejoice when he falls. But here's what he says at the end. He says, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord for he's been good to me. See, ultimately, even though David is going through this challenging time, even though he's wrestling, even though he's having this difficult time, he lands on the idea of trusting in God. That's his conclusion. I'm going to trust in your unfailing love. That's where I have to land. That's where I have to land. And that's where we need to land. Especially if after all our wrestling, it still doesn't make sense to us. Because let's be honest, we go through the scripture and sometimes we read these passages and interact with things that we go, ooh, I don't like that. That doesn't sit well with me. Or, you know, that doesn't sit well with society right now. There's a lot of things in here that society is like, that's intolerant. That's not okay. You can't say that about me. But see, this is God's word. And so there have been many times where I've been reading this scripture and go, God, I just don't get it. And I dive in and I study and I look at it and it, And I come out the other end just going, I still don't get it, God. But where I have to land, if God is my Savior, if God is my Lord, if God is the one that I have completely trusted in, I have to land on the fact that this is his word and this is truth. And I have to take that, even if it doesn't sit well with me sometimes. You wrestle with it. You fight it. You just kind of go through it. But you have to land at that conclusion. That's what God asks of us. Hey, trust me. I know this sounds weird. I know this sounds bonkers. Trust me in this. Noah, I know it sounds weird to build a boat and there's not water anywhere close by. Trust me. Ben, I know that this word 
doesn't sound right. It doesn't sit well with you. Trust me. This is what I've said. This is who I am. So that's the first thing that the story says in context and looking at everything that's going on is that God gives this invitation to Jacob. Hey, let's wrestle with this. I know you're in a tough spot right now. You feel like you've got nowhere to go. You've been kind of resting on your own laurels. You're afraid, yet you've got this promise from me. Let's give you some time to wrestle with this. Second, Second thing the story says in context is that God wants us to understand our own passion. Like I said, this, this story was, was not for God, but it was for Jacob. And here are some of the kind of questions that, that Jacob got to answer. What kind of energy would he put into the fight? Would he really invest and wrestle with this, or would he just kind of shrug it off? Would he just kind of call himself defeated? Would he realize as he was wrestling that this wasn't his own strength that was allowing him to continue, but rather God's strength working in him? And would he keep wrestling in the midst of adversity? So here he's wrestling and he's, and he's dealing with all this stuff and there's this physical manifestation of it going on as he's wrestling with God. And, and he's winning. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then God touches his hip and says, okay, now, now let's see what you're going to do. But see, the whole time, God never wondered if Jacob would face his fear and go meet Esau. God never wondered if Jacob would trust in what God has said. God never wondered if Jacob would keep going even when he touched his hip. He wanted Jacob to understand where he was at. This was for Jacob, not for God. In the same way as the story of Abraham. When God told Abraham to go and sacrifice Isaac, God wasn't sitting up in heaven going, man, I wonder what Abraham's going to do. Is he going to pull through on this? Of course not. He wasn't wondering that at all. He already knew. But Abraham didn't know. Not until Abraham walked through that not until Abraham wrestled with everything and, and dealt with just all the emotions and all the thoughts that were going on in his head and it kind of landed on the fact of, yeah, I'm going to trust God, did he really know in a new way what it meant to trust God? And see, I've gotten to see this in my own life. Some of you have, have heard me talk about Micah's seizure. My son Micah, when he was almost three he had a febrile seizure. His body couldn't handle his fever, and so his, his body's way of dealing with it was to, to cause him to have a seizure. But see, I didn't know anything about febrile seizures at the time, and all I knew is that my little boy was, was sick, wasn't feeling good, and then all of a sudden just started shaking and convulsing. And in that moment, I got to see how much I actually trusted God because I feared for my son's life. And I picked up his body as he was still seizing. And I said out loud, Okay, God, if you want him, he's yours. And see, I knew after the fact, 
looking back at the story, looking back at what happened, I knew that wasn't my own strength saying that. But that was God's strength in me, giving me the strength to, to trust him in that difficult time. But also what I learned from that and what I discovered was just how much I actually trusted God. See, we can sit here and theorize all day. We can sit here and talk about, oh, well, you know, if you're put in this scenario, are you going to trust God? Or if you're put in that scenario, are you going to trust God? But see, you never really know until you're actually tested and tried. And so I got, I got a new concept of just where I was at with God. I got to understand, in a sense, my own passion. So let me ask you a question. How have you reacted in the midst of adversity? In the midst of challenges that you've faced, in the midst of trials, have you trusted in God and who he is? Maybe sometimes you've shaken your fist at him and said, how dare you? Or maybe you've said, okay, God, I trust you in this. Walk, walk with me, please. I need you. Have you How have you reacted in the midst of adversity? See, God allows Jacob to to wrestle, to go through this, so that Jacob can understand how much he actually trusts God. See, I think his expression of wrestling was him saying, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to continue to trust you. I'm not going to just kind of let things go, but I'm going to fight, even if it's difficult. Third thing I think this story says in context is that God wants us to understand our place. In Hosea chapter 12, we get another kind of picture into this uh, story. Hosea tells us, In the womb, he took his brother by the heel. And in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. See, Jacob doesn't come out of this strutting like a peacock, saying, yeah, I beat God. Not at all. I think his hip socket touch was was partly a test, as I kind of just mentioned. But also I think it was partly a reminder, a reminder of who he's dealing with. He's wrestling with God. And as I said earlier, God isn't afraid of our questions. In fact, we are told to study to show yourself approved. A workman who needs not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. In 2 Timothy 2.15. But see, here's the problem. Some people take this idea of asking God questions and wrestling with him, they take it too far. And they say, it's okay to, to doubt God. But I don't think that's the case at all. First of all, if we look at the verse right after 2 Timothy 2.15, let me read you verses 15 and 16. Paul says to Timothy, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But, Timothy, avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. What he's saying is, look, dive in, study, ask the questions. But don't get into what he says, what he calls irreverent babble. 
saying things that aren't right towards God, that aren't giving God the honor, respect, trust, worthiness that he is due. That's part of why we, we sang this song, Canons, is just to say, look, let's remember who God is and remember our place. You are holy, great, and mighty. I'm so unworthy, but still you love me. And if that verse doesn't convince you, Jesus asked his disciples so many times, over and over and over. He berates them. He says, why are you guys doubting? Time after time after time, Jesus challenges their faith. Why don't you believe me? You still don't believe? You still don't get it? Believe me. Trust in me. Stop doubting me. God wants us to understand our place, that he is God and that we are below. I think being a parent just gives you this interesting perspective on God and who he is. A while ago, we, we got Micah a two-wheeler. It's got training wheels on it. But he had never been on a bike like that before. So I said, all right, hop on, Micah, and, and start riding. And he rode very, very slow. So slow to the fact that he'd like kind of get halfway around with the pedals and then get stuck. Like he couldn't, he couldn't keep going. I was like, Micah, you got you to go a little bit faster. And, and he just, he wouldn't. He'd, he'd do that again and then he'd get stuck. I said, you know how you don't get stuck like that? You go a little bit faster. And even with the training wheels, like just the way our street is, it's kind of like humped like this. Like he'd get over to the side and just kind of go bop and like fall off the bike. I go, Micah, you know what's going to keep you on that bike? If you go a little bit faster. And I kept encouraging him and kept saying like, Micah, you got to go a little bit faster. Micah, you got to go a little bit faster. No, Dad, no, Dad. And he just wouldn't. And after a while, I asked him, I go, are you scared? Is that why you're not going faster? He goes, yeah. I said, look, bud, I know it's scary. But to really get everything out of the bike, you just got to go a little bit faster. You got to trust me. And in that moment, he just wouldn't. He said, I, I want to go inside. <laughs> yeah. That frustrated me. I'm being honest. <laughs> But see, here's the thing. God tells us truths that we need to hear. And sometimes they scare us. He says, hey, look, I know this sounds a little bit scary, but you've got to trust me. If you just pedal a little bit faster, everything's going to be fine. You've got to trust me, though. And yet so many times we look at God and we're like, I want to go inside. No thanks, God. That's, that's just too scary. See, we've got to remember our place. And I think that experience just made me go, oh, sorry, God. I get it now. I'm sorry. I'll probably do it again, but I'm sorry. God wants us to understand our place, that he's God, we're not, and we need to trust him. Finally, what the story says in context is that God wants us to remember Here at the end of the story, he gives Jacob a new name. So great. Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. And God said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. 
For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. So God gives Jacob a new name and along with it, a new identity. Jacob's faith prevailed. Look, you kept going. You did what you needed to do. I love too that God says, hey, let me go for the day is broken. In other words, God's saying, look, you've got things to do. Time to let me go. But see, not only did God give Jacob a new name and a new identity, but also he gave Jacob a physical reminder. I'm going to make sure you remember this, Jacob, so that you don't forget what went on today. And it says that he limped away, limping because of his hip. There's a physical reminder. And not only did Jacob get that physical reminder, but Jacob's posterity got a physical reminder as well. And I love that too. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Hey, Dad, why don't, why don't we eat that part? Well, son, let me tell you about Jacob. Let me tell you about his encounter with God and what he learned through it. God wants us to remember. When we face trials, when we face adversity, when we wrestle with things and come out of it trusting God, he wants us to remember that. So finally, let's move on. As I said so many times after hearing this story, this is weird. Let's move on. Now I feel like after looking at this in context, I've gained a new understanding. But let's move on. So what happens after? First of all, there's a change in attitude in Jacob. Take a look at Genesis 33, first three verses. And Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, and then Leah with their children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. Now remember his plan? He was going to send Esau gift after gift after gift after gift. And then he came at the very, very end, kind of trailing behind everybody else. Okay, now that Esau's got all these gifts, maybe he can uh, like me. But look at what it says in verse 3. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. After this night of wrestling, he came to the point where he said, yeah, I'm going to trust God. I know that God is taking care of me, that his promises are good. And even though I'm going and facing my brother, who has every right to kill me the moment he sees me, I'm going to trust God and just go and face it. I don't need to send all these gifts in front of me. I'm going first. And so he does what's right and goes first. And see, in the rest of 33 and just the rest of Jacob's story, we see a total change. There's not much left, but the glimpses we get uh, show a humility and reverence that just wasn't there before. Jacob's totally switched from this selfish, kind of arrogant guy to someone that's humble and understands his place. So not only is there a change in attitude, but there's a deeper understanding of and focus on God. See, in 3230, as I kind of alluded to before, Jacob calls the name of the place Peniel, 
saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. He doesn't walk out of there going, guys, check this out. I wrestled with God and I beat him. Props to me. What, what? No, not at all. In fact, he comes with this humble attitude and says, wow, I saw the face of God and I survived. Total humility. And in fact, later in Genesis 35, I love this. God said to Jacob, arise and go to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the house, uh, to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar. Check out how he describes God. An altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. Jacob has this new focus on God, this new understanding of God. He answers me in the day of my distress. Man, I was freaking out. I didn't know what to do. And God kind of shows up and has me go through this weird encounter with him. But it allows me to see how much I actually trust him. And I come out on the other side trusting him. And has been with me wherever I have gone. God was with me that whole time. I trust him. See, in the end, it all comes back to God and the work that he is doing in us. This story makes James 1, 2 through 4 come alive in a new way. Think about Jacob. Think about the wrestling. Think about everything that he went through and how he came out on the other end. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete not lacking anything. Are you trusting God to do the work that he has for you? Remember, he is good and he is faithful. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this weird story. This weird story, but this great insight just into who you are, into how you work in our lives, God, into how vested you are in us. It just, it blows me away and it boggles my mind sometimes. God, that you would take the time to pour into our lives, to see us in our, in our struggle, in our pain, in our frustration, and God, to enter in and to work in our hearts. To not just throw up your hands and be like, well, there's a lost cause. But God, to pursue us and to perfect us. Thank you so much for that investment. And God, just let our hearts continue to pound for you, continue to burn for you, continue to ache for you. So that when the trials come, when the challenges come, we will be proved faithful. We love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.